Well, praise the Lord, everyone. I was told this church was a church that was excited about Jesus. I ain't hearing no excitement this morning. Amen. I will bless the Lord at all times. His praise shall continually be on my lips. How many of you are glad to be in the house of the Lord this morning? Somebody give Jesus some praise in here. Praise his holy name. I'm so excited to be among you this morning, um, basically because Pastor Johnny asked me to, and when Pastor Johnny called, you don't say no. <laughs> Pastor Johnny's a good friend of mine. We went to the training center together over in Elgin, Illinois, and you know, it wasn't, it wasn't easy, it wasn't hard to tell that Johnny was a an, an, uh, leader uh, up front. When we first met, I could just see leadership all over that brother. And uh, he just kind of had that charisma about himself. And so I'm glad that he and I developed a friendship and he would, you know, draw on me to come and preach the word. And so I don't take that lightly. I also don't take it lightly because I consider it none less than the mercies of God. It was over 25 years ago that I was facing three to 15 years in prison for drug trafficking. I had never heard the gospel clearly before until that point in time where I needed it most had an uncle, a relative of mine, who decided to share the gospel with me at that point, and I heard the gospel clearly communicated to me. And on February 12th, 1993, I'll never forget it, I placed my faith and trust in Jesus Christ and began a discipleship pattern, never looked back, and God saved me, redeemed me, placed me on a whole new path. And so I give God praise for that, but I bring that up to tell you that right after that, God called me to preach. And I said, well, Lord, it's enough that you saved me, but now you want me to go and preach your word? Okay, it's on now. So I'm going to just proclaim your name from the rooftops to anybody who would listen about Jesus because he's such a wonderful savior. Amen. He is such a wonderful God. And so it's nothing but the mercies of God that I'm here uh, with you today, proclaiming to you the truth of, of the word of God and am uh, able to do so. And I want to, uh, before I go forward into this message, acknowledge my wonderful, uh, beautiful, uh, tender-hearted, smoking hot wife, <laughs> Rennell, sitting down here to the left of me. And she made the trip with me all the way from what we call the land. You guys call Cleveland. We call it the land. And uh, we're still licking our wounds and grieving our losses from LeBron James leaving, but that's okay because we still got Jesus. Amen. We still got Jesus. Long as he on the throne, we got it going on. <laughs> so well, with no further ado, I want you to turn with me in your word to Leviticus chapter 10. And as you're turning, I want to pray for us. Father, I thank you so much for the opportunity to preach your word. I thank you, Lord, for the power that's in it and uh, the life application that it has. And so, Lord, with that said, I pray that you would help me to clearly communicate it. Give me power. Give me unction from on high. May your glory rain down even now, Lord. Display your manifest presence. May you be glorified in the communication of your attributes this morning. Father, I also pray for my brother Johnny and his wife and his family as they're on vacation, Lord, that you give them plenty of time to rest, plenty of time to uh, relate to one another, love one another. Uh, just relax, Lord. And at the same time, fill his mind and fill his, hearts, his heart with ideas coming up in the fall. I thank you for the glory that's been displayed in, in you opening up opportunities for this new campus. And I praise you and thank you for that. And Lord, I pray that you would just broaden the impact of this ministry in this community as a result of their move and their, their new location and continue to strengthen the leadership and keep them unified. 
And I praise you and thank you in advance for all these things. In Jesus' wonderful name, amen. Amen. Leviticus chapter 10. If you have it, say amen. I want to thank those of you who've been praying for me and preparing for this message. This is the book of Leviticus. So buckle your (laughs) seatbelts. Beginning with verse 1. Text says, now Nadab and Abihu, the sons of Aaron, each took his censer and put fire in it. And they laid incense on it and offered unauthorized fire before the Lord, which he had not commanded them. And fire came out from before the Lord and consumed them. And they died before the Lord. Mm. Then Moses said to Aaron, this is what the Lord has said. Among those who are near me, I will be sanctified. Before all the people, I will be glorified. And Aaron held his peace. This morning, I've simply titled this message, Three Ways to Avoid Vain Worship. Three Ways to Avoid Vain Worship. You ever known a person who was super smart intellectually, but lacked good common sense? Chances are you're probably thinking of them right now. Maybe you drove to church with them this morning. Who knows? (laughs) My grandparents used to have a saying for people like this. Hard-headed was one. But often they'd have this saying because they grew up in the South, and they would often say, you know, that boy right there, you know, he's just simply too smart for his own britches. Sad reality is they was often talking about me. But uh, the fact of the matter is too much self-confidence can sometimes prove dangerous. Uh, Just a few months ago, fire broke out in a neighborhood in upstate New York. And the fire went on to destroy three city blocks as the city went on to declare a state of emergency. The mayor of the city said this was the worst disaster the city's ever seen. But what struck people by surprise was not the fact that there was a fire, as much as it was how the fire started in the first place. You see, the fire started because an amateur bladesmith was trying to imitate a stunt he saw on TV. The name of the television show that he was watching and inspired him was called Forged in Fire. It's a show on the History Channel that pretty much puts different bladesmiths against one another in this steep competition, this heavy competition, and they often compete against one another to recreate historical weapons from out of fire. And apparently, John Gomez was his name, thought he belonged on the show. And he took it upon himself to try and mimic a stunt he saw on TV, but in the process, he burned down a whole neighborhood. As we look back at the scene in Leviticus chapter 10, we see another dubious and dangerous stunt. And the lesson we learn in both is this, carelessness can sometimes prove catastrophic. Such was the case with Nadab and Abihu, who was too smart for their own britches. A little background might help us understand. You see, the book of Leviticus is a book of regulations whose aim is to instruct the Levitical priesthood, as well as the Israelites, in ways that they were to properly worship God. They would need to have this level of understanding because they were sojourning on a quest to possess the promised land. And as they were sojourning on this quest to possess the promised land, they were surrounded by pagan nations who worshiped a God of their own understanding. 
a God of their own imagination, a God of their own making. They were surrounded by all these pagan nations, and as they worshiped a God of their own understanding, this led to some corrupt thinking. It led to corrupt practices, sin, rebellion, and the likes. And in the midst of this, God provides the Israelite community a detail for not only how they should conduct themselves amongst the pagan world around them, but how they should properly worship God. Now, why does God do this? Because God wanted to distinguish himself from the other pagan nations around them, and he would primarily distinguish himself by way of the people's worship. You see, how you worship God makes a difference in what people think about the God that you worship. How you worship God makes a difference in what people think about the God that you worship. If you call yourself a worshiper of God on Sunday, but yet there's no difference between your life and the rest of the world on Monday, there's a disconnect in there somewhere. Because how you worship God makes a difference in what people think about the God that you worship. They're going to wonder which God you worship. That's up for a whole nother sermon. Suffice it to say, we don't necessarily adhere to the details of the Mosaic law today, but there are some enduring truth principles that you and I can glean and apply to our life. And one of them just kind of leaps out of the page as we read from verses one through three in Leviticus chapter 10. And that's this. God don't play when it comes to worship. You read it yourself. He doesn't play. There's a popular saying out there. These days, I'm not sure who actually coined the phrase, but it's pretty much a knock on the contemporary church today and the various aspects of our philosophies of ministry, so on and so forth. And, and the quote pretty much goes like this. It says, too many people in the church today worship their work, work at their play, and play when it comes to worship. i say that again. Too many people in the church today worship their work work at their play, and play when it comes to worship. But ladies and gentlemen, when it comes to worship, God does not play. And no amount of trickery or traditionalism, no amount of man-made tact can ever invoke his pleasure or his presence. Rather, it invokes his displeasure, and I would even add sometimes his wrath. Sometimes his wrath. That's what we saw in this text. And so it leaves us with this question. How do we as human beings, as fallen as we are, how do we interact with this holy God? I mean, because the truth be told, I I got some stuff in my life. Honestly, I know I'm a preacher, but if you could just read into my mind some of the thoughts I have when somebody just cuts me off in traffic, (laughs) you wonder how I'm I'm even up here today. And if the preacher is fallen, I know the people got some issues, so don't sit there and act all cute, because I know y'all got some stuff in your life too. And so how do we as human beings, as fallen and as corrupt as we are, interact with this holy God who is majestic and altogether separate from us? Well, this text illustrates for us three ways that we can worship God in the correct way, and the first is this, the way we worship must be governed by God's commands must be governed by God's commands. Notice verse one. Now Nadab and Abihu, the sons of Aaron, they each took his censer and they put fire in it and they laid incense on it and offered unauthorized. Somebody say unauthorized. It was an unauthorized fire. Some of your versions say strange fire before the Lord, which he had not commanded them. 
You see, Nadab and Abihu were part of an elite group of priests who served in the Old Testament in the Jewish priesthood, in the Levitical priesthood. They were second behind Moses and Aaron. In fact, they happened to be Aaron's two oldest sons. And as such, they had some prior exposure to the divine glory of God and his manifest presence. For instance, just a chapter prior, in chapter 9 of Leviticus, we read about the inauguration of the sacrificial system. And in this chapter, Moses lays out some meticulous details for not only the proper functioning of worship, but the form in which worship was to take shape. Let me say that again. Moses lays out meticulous details for not just the proper functioning or purpose of worship, but the form in which that worship was to take shape. You might be surprised to know that worship could take on many different forms, many different shapes, but it only really has one primary function governing it and driving it. And that purpose is to invoke the manifest presence of God. Some of you look confused, so I'll prove it. Leviticus chapter 9, when we talk about God's glory, remember this too. Remember when we're talking about God's glory, we're talking about uh, that unmistakable presence of God that comes in the form of his activity in our midst, okay? It's stuff that you and I can't take credit for, but when you see it, you hear about it, you know it was God. And this manifest presence of God is the very thing sought after in Leviticus chapter 9 with the inauguration of the Levitical sacrificial system. For instance, Leviticus chapter 9 verse 4 says this. This is after Moses lays out all of these details about the worship and how worship was to take shape. He says, today the Lord will appear to you. Leviticus 9 4. He goes on to say in Leviticus 9 6 that this is the thing the Lord commanded you to do. Why? That the glory of the Lord might appear to you. And after all of these burnt offerings were made and offered and given from Moses and Aaron, after the peace offering, after the sin offering, after the guilt offering, after all of these offerings took place, Leviticus chapter 9 concludes with this. The glory of the Lord appeared to all the people, and fire came out from before the Lord and consumed the burnt offering and the pieces of fat on the altar. And when all the people saw it, they shouted and they fell on their faces. Now, why did they shout? Why did they fall on their faces? It was because God showed up. He showed up, he manifested his presence in the form of fire. When the people saw it, they fell on their faces and shouted because they invoked his manifest presence. Now keep in mind, this is the backdrop of Leviticus chapter 10. Whereas on one hand, these people had just gone from great joy and jubilant celebration, but joy turns to gloom real quick for what seems to be a casual mistake in worship. Keep that in mind. You have two amateur priests who by all means, they they meant well in their worship. But it was something about the form of their worship which contradicted with the function of their worship. Follow me into the text. The text just simply says in verse 1, again, they took their censers and then they put fire in it. Some of you may wonder, well, what in the world is a censer? I'm glad you asked that question. A censer was like a long metal rod. At the end of the metal rod, there was a pan attached to it. We just purchased a home about a year ago. 
home comes with a fireplace. Those of you who have fireplaces know that there are certain instruments outside of the fireplace that you can use to, some of them are just decorations. In our sake, it was just for decorations because it was a gas fireplace, it's not a wood burning. But, but some of these instruments can be used to shovel out ashes from within the fireplace. And I have one of those. I was going to bring it to use it as a sermon illustration, but TSA wouldn't let me in with it. So, so you can use your imagination. Amen. But that's sort of like a sensor in the Old Testament. It was like a long metal rod and attached to this long metal rod was a, like a frying pan sort of. And, and what these priests would often do with this long metal rod is they would march this, this rod or this metal uh, sensor over to what's called the brazen altar. The brazen altar is where all the sacrifices in the Old Testament took place. This is where all your sin offering took place, all your guilt offering, all the bulls and all the animals, they were slaughtered on this this brazen altar. And what God would normally do after their worship took place by way of the sacrifice is he would rain down fire from heaven symbolizing his manifest presence. You stand with me here. He would rain down heaven, consume the sacrifices. Now, what the priests would normally do is they would take that censer, which was a long metal rod, frying pan attached to it. They would walk over to the brazen altar. They would scoop out, scoop out coals from underneath that brazen altar where the sacrifice took place. Then they would carefully march these coals over to what's called the Holy of Holies. Within the Holy of Holies, there were incense. What the priest would do is take the coals that were still live and burning from the brazen altar, light the incense with these coals. The smoke that rose from the incense were symbolic of the prayers of the people. Stick with me because I'm going somewhere. I know I'm going deep, but here's the point. What the, what the priest did, Nadab and Abihu, what they likely did wrong was this. Rather than transfer fire from coals from the brazen altar, they likely deviated from another, to another source. Now, we don't know what that source was, but they deviated from protocol, obviously, by taking fire from this source, and now what they're dealing with is the wrath of God as a result. Now, we don't know what that source was. It was just, the Bible calls it a strange source. It was an unauthorized source, and it was a source that encroached upon the commands of God. Here's a side point not intended as a main point of the message, but be careful not to let the shape of your worship contradict with the simple truth of God's commands, with the simple truth of his word. Be careful not to let how you go about worshiping, how you go about strategizing philosophies of ministries and paradigms for ministry and church and methodologies, so on and so forth, and you find at the end of the day there's a disconnect from those methodologies and sources from what God intended in his word. Because some of us, if we're honest with ourselves, oh, we mean well when it comes to developing methodologies for winning the lost, but we settle for making friends as opposed to followers of Jesus Christ. Some of us, we mean well when we come up with ministry strategies and methodologies, so on and so forth, but it, it deviates from what God intended. Now, this brings to mind the whole form versus function debate going on in the church today. It's a debate. Some of y'all didn't even know there was a debate. There's a debate, though. And the idea is this, that when we worship God and practice certain spiritual disciplines, i.e. worship, methodologies for evangelism, missiology and the study of missions, so on and so forth, the methods that we choose to employ must conform with the purpose of God's word because form follows function. Now, 
I don't mean to gripe because y'all brought me here as a guest and I'm not trying to be critical. You know, some of us Christians can be that way. I um, recently started working out. Now, as soon as I said that, y'all are supposed to say, we can tell. <laughs> so, I recently started working out. Oh, thank you so much. I joined Planet Fitness back home. Go in there. And every time I go in, there's this one guy. He always sees me. He's a former pastor, but he's bitter. And every time he sees me, he just kind of walks up to me because he knows I'm a pastor as well. And the first words out of his mouth is he's just ragging on the church and he's overly critical about this and he's dogging people out over here. He's just talking about, yeah, 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 always critical. And one day I had to tell him, I said, you know, pastor, you, you do seem to be angry. <laughs> you, know? you know, all that criticism could be a form of idolatry. Well, lo and behold, he don't talk to me no more. So, <laughs> so he see me, he come the other way, he go the other way now, so. But I'm not trying to be critical. I'm not trying to be demeaning because I love the church. Jesus bought and bled for the church. He died for the church. And so I'm not trying to over-criticize the church. But, but there has to be a disconnect somewhere. If I'm spending, let's say, thousands of dollars on smoke machines in my church and not one person's coming to saving faith in Jesus Christ, no worship is taking place, fog lights, all these other extremities. There's got to be a disconnect if I'm creating warm, fuzzy, comfortable, cozy environments as a horizontal way to attract the lost, but not one person gets saved, not one person turns and starts following Jesus Christ. There has to be a disconnect somewhere. There's a disconnect between the function of my worship and the form of my worship when I'm beginning to settle for narcissistic, crowd-pleasing amusement, hype, entertainment, and the like as a substitute for God's presence, but I'm still left longing for a real transformative encounter with Almighty God. There's a disconnect somewhere. I like what H.B. Charles says. He's a pastor from Florida. He says this. He says, he says man-centered worship services and therapeutic preaching and practical ministry ideas may do lots to draw crowds, but at the end of the day, it does very little to make disciples. And the flip side of that is there's a disconnect when my worship becomes stoic. And I'm stuck staring back at the past and the way we once used to do service and the way I once used to live and the things that once used to draw me closer to God, but now serve as obstacles as I begin to elevate the form above the function. And we could go on and on with this, even with our personal lives, when I approach God with fire that comes from the residue of my own self-righteousness, that's a vain fire before the Lord. When I approach God with fire that comes from the thought that my, my tithes or my offerings can bring me closer to the Lord, that is a strange fire before the Lord. Suffice to say that the way we worship must be governed by God's commands. I can I ask you a question this morning? Where does your worship originate from? As you walk through the doors of this school, this church, where does your worship originate from? Is it coming from a heart that's steadfastly focused on the Lord Jesus Christ? Is it coming from a heart that's deep-seated and loves to elevate Jesus Christ? The way we worship must be governed by God's commands. But secondly, get this, secondly, the way we worship determines God's response. God's got a response in verse 2. Look at it. Verse 2, the text says, And fire came out from before the Lord and consumed them, and they died before the Lord. 
You got to imagine this scene was quite dramatic. I mean, fire, you got fire coming down from heaven, and this fire that came from heaven was meant to consume the burning sacrifices on the altar or the altar sacrifices, but instead of the altar getting the sacrificial, you know, the fire raining down on it, God rained down fire on the worshipers to the shock, horror, and dismay of the whole community. I mean, this created a national tragedy, make no mistake about it. Because Nadab and Abihu were elevated priests. They were second behind Moses and Aaron. So you had to imagine this created a national tragedy. And you know, I used to read this text at times and I would think, you know, this is kind of harsh, don't you think? I mean, couldn't God have given them leprosy or something? I mean, this is like overkill. I got to rain down fire on them. It was an honest mistake, but don't make a mistake about it. God has a point to prove here. You see, the sacrifices that took place over here on the brazen altar were symbolic of the sacrifice of our Lord Jesus on the cross. Trying to approach God with residue from any other source is an abomination to God. God don't play when it comes to worship. You've got to be careful where your source lies. You see, trying to approach him with residue from good works and residue that comes from self-righteousness, this is an abomination to God. And, and it's not unusual in the Bible to find many places, especially in the Old Testament, where you see God have this breakout fashion against false, vain, hypocritical types of worship. Numbers chapter 16 tells a story where God struck down 250 people. Why? For inappropriate forms of worship. There's the story of Uzzah, Uzzah, depending on where you place the emphasis. You guys got that. <laughs> the story in 2 Samuel chapter 6, God, God rained down, he burned, his, his anger burned against Uzzah and he struck him down. Why? For a casual regard of God in his worship. It's not just an Old Testament thing. It also happens in the New Testament. In Acts chapter 5, Ananias and Sapphira, they lied to the Holy Spirit regarding their offerings. How many of you know that offering is a form of worship? When we offer our tithes and offering, that's a form of worship. They're getting quiet on me, dear. But they lied to the Holy Spirit, and as they lied, well, they thought they lied to man, but Paul, uh, Peter makes it clear, you have not lied to man, but to God, and they fell down dead. God watches our worship closely so as to respond to our worship accordingly. He watches our worship closely so as to respond to our worship accordingly. Now, obviously, God's not raining down fire no more. Thank God for that. Amen? Ain't you glad God don't give you what you deserve? Amen? The Bible says in Lamentations 3 that because of the great love, the Lord's great love for us, we are not consumed for his compassions never fail. I'm glad God don't give me what I deserve because if he gave me what I deserve, then I know he'll give you what you deserve. And that means half of us will be left out of this church right now because he's raining down fire on us. But thank God for his mercy. Thank God for his grace. Thank God for his love. That said, we need to be careful not to misunderstand this. Because just because God grants us grace never diminishes how he feels about vain acts of worship. God watches our worship closely so as to respond to our worship accordingly. There's a hit 
television show. I'm not even sure if it's still out anymore, but some of you are familiar with it. It's called Undercover Boss. You've seen that show? And basically put different CEOs um, and they, they take them and they take them away from their normal routine of business and they dress them up in disguise and they go deep undercover to spy on workplace performance and different employees and so forth. And I'll never forget one episode where they dressed the CEO up in disguise and he went deep undercover, but the CEO got so mad and so upset about what he was seeing that he just simply broke character. (laughs) He couldn't keep his disguise on any longer. He ripped off his mustache, took off his hat, and he took the manager out back, fired the manager on the spot and shut the whole place down. I thought, you know, in a lot of ways, we worship a God who's sort of like an undercover observer when you think about it. And he's coming into services and he's looking at your life. He's examining everything and he's asking himself the same question every single time he observes. He says, what is the source of these people's worship of me? Is it coming from the flesh or is it coming from the spirit of truth? Is there worship of me coming from affection for the Lamb of God slain from the foundation of the world, or is it coming from self-interest, self-willed, hedonistic desires and lusts? What is the source? Sometimes it's not easy to tell that, but God watches our worship closely so as to respond to our worship accordingly. Now, again, obviously, he's not responding to our vain worship or worship in general, the same as he did in the Old Testament, but God nevertheless still responds. And I want to suggest for you three ways at least that God responds to our worship even today. And in particular, three ways that he responds to vain worship today. And the first is this, God just simply withdraws his presence. He withdraws his presence. Now, when we talk about God's presence I'm not necessarily talking about his omnipresence, which encompasses his loyal love and his covenantal love and protection. That much we can count on. Uh, The Bible says, and it promises, he says, Jesus says, I will never leave you nor forsake you. I will always be with you. That much we know. Jesus says, I will live with you and I will be with you all the days of your life. He gives us that promise. So we're not talking about his omnipresence. There's a difference, right? I mean, there's a difference between God's omnipresence. He's here. He's there. He's everywhere at the same time. And his manifest presence, which is unique, consists of his activity in our lives, in our midst. How many of you know that God longs to show off his works? He longs to show off his glory. He longs to show off his activity in our midst. Second Chronicles chapter 16, verse 9 says, For the eyes of the Lord run to and fro throughout the whole earth to show himself strong on behalf of those whose heart is loyal towards him. Isaiah 64, 4, Since ancient times no one has heard, no ear has perceived, no eye has seen any God besides you who works for those who wait for him. God longs to show off his glory. He longs to manifest his presence. In fact, did you realize that every answer to prayer you get, every experience of God's pers- of, of a personal breakthrough, and every experience of God's grace and salvation is an example of God's glory being revealed. That's his manifest presence in our lives. Every time we gather together for worship, 
and we lift high the name of Jesus Christ. The Bible says it's clear. It says God actually enthrones or is inhabited by those praises. In other words, God makes himself at home wherever he feels welcome with our worship. But whenever we begin to substitute the supernatural manifestation of God, For superficial forms of vanity, no matter what that looks like, God always withdraws his activity, leaving us to our own agendas. God withdraws his presence when our worship is vain. But secondly, he withholds his blessings. James chapter 4, verse 3, you ask and you do not receive because you ask with wrong motives. So you may spend it on your pleasures. It says you ask, but you do not receive because your motives are bad. Want to know why you may not be experiencing a breakthrough and answered prayers in your life? Could it be that your approach to prayer and your approach to worship has been in vain? And God says, I'm not going to reward that as long as it's out of line with my character. He withholds his blessings. He withholds his rewards. And that's the third way, actually, God withholds his rewards. Matthew chapter 6, verse 1, beware of practicing your righteousness before others in order to be seen by them. For then you will have no reward from your father who was in heaven. And there you have it, three ways that God responds even today to false, vain worship. He withdraws his presence. He withholds his blessings. And finally, he withholds his eternal rewards. And ladies and gentlemen, can't you see now why it's so critical for us to have our attitudes right when it comes to worship? Because it makes a difference. It makes a difference between a casual, nonchalant, boring routine and a supernatural encounter with Almighty God. This is why in Harvest, the world of Harvest, we talk so much about his manifest presence. Because without God's manifest presence, we're left to our own agendas. And without his manifest presence, we're left with no rewards. We're left without his presence. We're left without his blessings. So to summarize things, the way we worship, number one, it must be governed by God's commands. The way we worship must uh, worship determines God's response. But finally, verse, verse three, the way we worship must convey respect for God's holiness. Must convey respect for God's holiness. Verse three, the text says, then Moses said to Aaron, this is what the Lord has said. Among those who are near me, I will be sanctified. And before all the people, I will be glorified. And Aaron held his peace. Aaron had to hold his peace. You know why? Because Aaron submits to God's justice. May God be true and every man a liar. If Aaron would have stood up and opposed God at that very moment, he stood to lead the entire congregation away from God. Because God was making a clear and obvious point. The only sacrifices I accept are the sacrifices that come from the altar, which, again, were symbolic of the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. And so Aaron recognized that, and he says, I'm not going to even challenge it. I'm just going to submit to God's divine justice. Now, this is probably the most important point in this passage, because you can see it right here. Nadab and Abihu pretty much took, as you well know, a cavalier approach to worship. And I can imagine how it could have happened, really. There's a part of me that kind of sympathizes with him because maybe 
To Nadab and Abihu, their worship by this time had become boring and routinish. I mean, when you consider all of what they had to go through in order to put on worship, I mean, we complain about setting up and tearing down. They had to slaughter bulls and goats. They had to slaughter animals. And every time you turned around, they had to slaughter another one. And so it became a pretty laborious routine. First of all, they had to carefully select animals, and they couldn't select lame or crippled animals. They had to select the best of the best, and so they would get the best bull, one which was without blemish, and after that, they would go and get a male goat, or, and then they would go and get a male lamb, and, and they would sacrifice them, and, and then they would sacrifice more offerings. I mean, you're talking about a bloody, filthy mess. And Nadab and Abihu, by this time, they were probably thinking, I'm tired of dealing with this mess. We've got to come up with something else. I'm tired of dealing with this laborious routine of my life. Maybe they even got impatient with God. Maybe he wasn't raining down fire quick enough. And so they came up with their own mechanism for making fire. Maybe they used a big lighter or some matches or something. We don't need God's fire. We can manifest our own fire and make it happen on our own without God. You've seen one fire, you've seen them all. And so they probably had this nonchalant attitude, but you can call it whatever you want. In the eyes of God, their worship was profane. It was profane because it was lackadaisical. It was profane because it was flippant. It was profane because it was routine and careless And it was profane because they came up with man-made humanistic ideas to conjure up God's glory in his presence, and it became a superficial form rather than the real thing. And how often do we enter worship with that same cavalier approach? I don't even know why I'm going to church today when it's raining outside. I mean, we could think up (laughs) many different reasons for not coming to give God glory. I don't like the songs that they're singing or... I don't like the pastor. I don't like this. This church is not funny enough. It's not entertaining for me enough. It makes me, I mean, we come up with our own clever ingenuity. The mind is never more clever than when it seeks its own way. There's a guy on Sunday morning. His name was George. He tells his wife, he says, I'm never going to church again. And his wife was surprised. She said, honey, why? He says, first of all, I'm tired. Second of all, the people there don't like me. And third of all, the sermons are boring. His wife said, well, honey, we got to go to church. She said, he says, why? She says, first of all, we always worship on Sunday. Second of all, it don't matter what the people think of you. And third of all, you the pastor. <laughs> you, you, you can't get out of this one. You got to go. And uh, truth be told, many of us are a lot like George. We come to church, but we're not really at church. We're checked out. We come to church, but because they're not singing my songs, I don't want to, I'm not interested. And we come to church, but we don't really participate and join and give and make sacrifices to help with the establishment of this new facility coming up. Oh, there's plenty of opportunity coming up in the next couple of months, but your attitude is going to make the difference. Come to church. We don't really give it our all. We'd rather just sit in the back seat and play a passive role and pout, but that's a careless, cavalier approach to worship that God calls profane. The way we worship must convey respect for God's holiness. But is that possible? Is it possible? I mean, is it really possible? Earlier I asked you the question, how do we as human beings, as fallen and as corrupt as we are, How do we interact with this holy God? I mean, I'm messed up, you're messed up. How do we interact with the holiness of God? Is there a proper way to worship him? And truth be told, that question is kind of self-defeating. 
Because you cannot worship God or interact with this holy God in the flesh. It's impossible. It's too vain. Your flesh is too vain. Your flesh is too corrupt. Your flesh is too strange. The Bible says all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And the Bible goes on to say that no flesh will ever glory in God's presence. And so we need a little bit of help to worship God. You can't worship him on your own. We need some sort of shield to protect us. Amen. We need some sort of filter to lead us home and to lead us into God's presence. I mentioned the house I bought about a year ago and uh, like last fall, I think it was, turn on the faucet water, got a drink and we noticed that the water tasted funny. Next thing I know, the water went from tasting funny to smelling funny and it was just terrible. And unbeknownst to me that the previous homeowners had installed a water filtration system in the kitchen sink and that filtration system expired. And so I went in and I took the filtration system out, swapped it out with a brand new one. Now my water is tasting clean. It's filtered out all the bacteria. It's filtered out all the extremities. All the bad chemicals are gone. And now my water is tasting refreshing and fine. And what God is telling us this morning in the pages of this text is that he sent his one and only son, Jesus Christ, to serve as a filtration system for our worship. He is the high priest that makes our worship acceptable before God. You can't do it on your own because you're too dirty. You're too filthy. And Johnny called me all the way from Cleveland to tell you that. (laughs) That all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And the wages of sin is death and eternal separation from his presence. But God loves you so much, ladies and gentlemen, that he gave you a filtration system to cleanse your worship and make it perfect once and for all. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 19 and 22. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the most holy place by the blood of Jesus, let us draw near to God with sincere hearts and full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled to cleanse us from a guilty conscience and having our bodies washed with pure water. How many of you in here could use a cleansing this morning? Could use a filtration system named Jesus. Heads bowed, eyes closed. If you'll pray with me, the only worship God accepts is worship that emanates through his son. And just as the worship that took place in the Old Testament took place on the brazen altar, God is now focused on the cross. And he says, that's the only way to please me. Outside of Jesus Christ, your worship is vain. And somebody in here this morning has yet to choose Jesus. You've been looking everywhere. You've searched social media. Social media is not the answer. You've searched different religions. Religion's not the answer. It leaves you high and dry. It leaves you still longing for a real transformative encounter with Almighty God. But today you can make the choice to enter on God's grounds. The grounds that he's laid out in his word is the grounds that emanate Jesus. It comes through Jesus. It comes through the cross. And so someone here may want to decide today, right now, you say, I'm tired of running. I'm tired of my life lived in vain. I want to be acceptable before God. Right now is the day of salvation. You can trust Jesus Christ today. Repent of your sins. Turn and follow him and enter into eternal life from there on. 
Father, I pray for this church. I pray for the members in it and the individuals who are right now thinking through this idea of Jesus and the gospel and how it impacts their life and what it means for them right now. I pray that you would make it real to them. May your Holy Spirit convict their heart and lead them to respond and repent, turn and follow Jesus who is our ultimate filtration system. And more than that, Lord, he's the God who we worship and adore forever. And I just thank you. And thank you for this opportunity and thank you for what you're doing here. It's in Jesus' wonderful name I pray. Amen.